Corinthians 10, if you guys would. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 10. And I am going to stay right there for the next little bit, all right? Let's move kind of quickly. So I want to get I want to I want to get to what I the meat of this, but in order to get to the meat of this, we've got to do a little work beforehand and establishing some ground, okay? So this class for the last few months, however long it's been, three months, maybe longer, has been on the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, how God makes promises and He keeps them. We've kind of gone through the Old Testament, New Testament, looked at some different promises, some things that God says, I'm going to do this. This is, this is what I'll do. And God always does what He says. And we've looked at a number of them. We're going to look at one in 1 Corinthians 10. This is a pretty familiar passage. Uh, it's quoted a lot. And uh, it's brought us comfort. It'll, I hope, bring us comfort even more tonight. But here's the, here's the promise, all right? And then I'm going to go back and we'll think about what it means, all right? Because it might not mean exactly what, what we think. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. All right? You know that promise, right? Probably heard it before. That you're in some particular kind of struggle and uh, God's going to give you a way out. That's probably not the way, that's not the best way to say it. And well, I'll tell you why I don't think that's the best way to say it uh, a little bit farther along. Okay. But the promise on the surface, at least, is uh, everybody's going to be tempted. And you probably been in a temptation and you may be in that temptation right now and you have despaired of your ability ability to resist it in fact i'd like to pause here just for a second if i can stop talking just for a second i'd like for you to think about that in your own life think about maybe what the hebrews writer says that sin I think I'm quoting the King James here, uh, that sin which so easily besets us, Hebrews 12. Um, can't remember the other quote, the other translations of that. You know what I'm talking about, right? Some, some sin you've struggled with, are struggling with. Have you ever gotten to a point, I do, I do want you to reflect kind of individually on this. Have you ever gotten to a point where you thought, I, can't, I cannot resist this? Like I've tried, I've tried again and again and again. I just can't do it. You know, it's not within my power to do it. And that might be an accurate statement. For all of us, it's not within our power to resist. But maybe you've even despaired of God's help in this. Like, God, God, I've prayed God to take it away. I've prayed that God would help me to resist, and he hasn't. Or at least I haven't sensed it. I haven't felt it. And so I hope that maybe you can relate to this in some way. And I want us to look at this promise and think about what it means and trust that it means something really powerful. But in order to do that, we're going to go back in the few verses before this and we're going to think about what Paul is saying. Merv, did you have your hand up? No. Okay. You're waving your glasses in the air. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. You be thinking about it. I'll come back to you when you have a real comment. All right. Okay. 1 Corinthians 10. Go back and look at this. In fact, I'm going to go back to the end of chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9, because I want you to see how Paul sets all this up. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 has to be interpreted in the context. You know this about Bible reading. You don't just pull a pretty verse out, and this is a pretty verse. You don't just pull a pretty verse out and say, okay, this is what I think it means for me. No, you've got you to do some, do some work beforehand and 
It's right in the middle of a letter that Paul said a lot of stuff before this. He says a lot of stuff after this. And you've got to read it in that setting. Okay. So, in, uh, Paul is dealing with a church that had a lot of problems. This is, Paul loved these folks. Uh, but man, they frustrated him too. Uh, they were, they'd come, come out of paganism. I mean, for real paganism. Like, some crazy stuff is going on in Corinth. It had a reputation, even among pagans, as being especially pagan. And it's bad when pagans think you're pagan, you know? Well, pagans thought Corinth was pagan. That's how bad it was there. And so Paul had gone there and preached the gospel, and some of these folks had become Christians, but, they, man, they were having a hard time leaving that lifestyle. There were just things that they couldn't turn their back on. Some of the things, you may remember this from reading Corinthians, is sexual immorality was, Corinth was riddled with all forms of sexual deviance. Just a pretty rough place. Prost temple prostitution, uh, engaging in sex as an act of worship to the gods or goddesses, you know. Was, uh, and then and that carried over into people's private lives. First century world, the Roman world, was just, you know, had all sorts of stuff going on um, sexually with, um, you know, men having boys who were their sexual playthings, um, just uh, lots of, you know, pedophilia was. Uh, pretty common in the Roman Empire and uh, various places in the first century. So, and uh, not only that, but just, uh, you know, men weren't expected to be faithful to their wives. That wasn't even really considered something that they would do or, you know, wasn't, wasn't even something that, that they strove for. You know, so all sorts of things were going on in Corinth. So the Christians were coming out of that, but they weren't completely coming out of it. There were a lot of this stuff still going on in the church. And so Paul is writing this letter to these Christians to try to help them to realize, man, when you become Christians, it means you, you put some of this stuff behind and you, you cannot keep living as you were living. Okay, so at the end of chapter 9, Paul says something that is pretty, pretty neat when he says, uses an analogy of athleticism, and he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. So run. Run like this so that you can obtain it. It's the idea. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to, to receive a perishable wreath. Talking about the, you know, like the early forerunners of what would become the Greek games, the Olympics, and all that. Um, they receive this perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do, I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know what Paul's doing here? I wanted to read that because I want you to see what he's doing. These people were living lives that were creating an environment in which their disqualification was very real. Uh, they, they were starting to dabble in some of these sexual practices and idolatrous practices that they supposedly had turned their back on. And so Paul says, man, I, Paul says, even, even I, you know, I, I, maybe they looked up to him, I'm an apostle and I still have to engage in daily self-discipline lest I should be disqualified. Paul says, this takes effort and it takes discipline and you gotta, you gotta stay on this thing and Paul says, I discipline my own body. And then he goes on, verse 1, and he says, For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, 
that our fathers were all under the cloud. All right, let's talk about Old Testament here for a minute. He uses four examples here. Our fathers were all under the cloud. God, this is in the Old Testament when God led them out of Egypt, and he led them with this pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. Remember that? They're all under the cloud. All passed through the sea, that is, through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud. That cloud was above them. The sea was around them. So it was like a baptism. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. God fed them with manna and quail, and he gave them water. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So he says, God led you with a cloud. He, he led you across the Red Sea with waters on, water on both sides and the cloud above you. He gave you man and quail, so he gave you food. He gave you water from the rock, miraculous water. Remember this? This, I mean, this is in the book of Exodus. You know? He did all this stuff for you. And even, even, though, even though they had all of these miraculous manifestations of the presence of God, still most of them didn't make it to the promised land. It's like Paul is saying, look, these folks had all of these blessings and they still they missed out on the ultimate reward. They didn't, they didn't make it there. They didn't make it to the land of Canaan, you know? And they had all this stuff. It's like Paul is saying, I struggle with this. I have a hard time with my self-discipline, chapter 9. Back there, you remember those folks? They had all these miraculous things. They struggled with self-discipline. You see, he's building up to this. He's going to say to them, so don't think you can somehow just kind of like coast in without putting forth effort. Athletes put in effort. He's already used that example. So that's the first part of this. And he says in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. So, so look for four different examples here of things that they did. Okay, Paul's speaking in fours. Um, so he says... These are examples. Verse 7. Number one, don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is an Exodus. You remember when Moses was up on the mountain, he was getting the law from God at the top of Mount Sinai, and all that stuff was happening. And down below, the people, <clears throat> people in Aaron concocted this plan. And the plan was we don't know what happened to Moses, but uh, let's, make, let's make ourselves some gods like the ones we used to have in Egypt. And so they got Aaron, they, they, made the, they got their gold together, they melted the gold, and they fashioned this golden calf. That's, that's what he's talking about. Bad, bad deal. First commandment was don't make any graven images, don't have any other gods before me. And while God was given that commandment, those commandments, uh, they were down there doing the exact opposite. So don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written. That's the first one that people sat down to eat. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is in the book of Numbers. This happened, remember the story of Balaam and the talking donkey? Remember that? That was at Moab. After that, uh, Balaam kind of counseled them apparently, and, he, and he, they, they came up with this plan, the Moabites did, that they would tempt the Israelite people with sex. And Israelite people didn't resist it very well. And so they committed sexual immorality and God moved among them and punished them. So that's example number two. Number three, verse nine, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did 
and were destroyed by serpents. You remember the serpents that God sent among them and he, he provided a way out if they, Moses made this uh, serpent of brass, put it on a pole and, and um, if anybody was bitten by a snake, they could come out there and look at the brass serpent and they, you know, they'd be healed. That's that story. That's in the Old Testament as well. That's as a result of their testing God, putting God to the test. Verse, nine, uh, verse 10, here's number four. Don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So you got four manifestations of the presence of God in verses one through five. The cloud, the Red Sea, the food and, uh, the, food and the drink, number four. And then you got four examples of their testing God, disobeying God, idolatry, sexual immorality, tempting God, and grumbling against God. So you've got another set of four. And then he makes some application here. Verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Okay, I want to mention a little bit about what that doesn't mean. A quotation I was going to read you. Um, I think what this doesn't mean, and I... Okay, yeah, all right, I've got the quote. I'll read this in a second. What that doesn't mean, uh, take heed, what does he say? Verse 12, um, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So this doesn't mean, okay, it doesn't mean that you can't have confidence in your salvation. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you can't have security in the fact that you are a child of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, Paul writes you know, in another letter. So it doesn't mean that. You've got to read that part of this over against this backdrop of the examples of disobedience in the Old Testament, the importance of diligence in Paul's life. You've got to read it in the middle of this situation in Corinth where they were apparently dabbling in some of these sexual practices that they had supposedly left behind. They were getting involved with some of these idolatrous feasts that were common in Corinth where they would offer up these animals as sacrifices to the gods. Apparently, some of the Christians were kind of flirting with that again. Uh, among the Corinthians, there was uh, this attitude of putting God to the test. Well, God's not really going really to do anything about that. We're saved by grace. There was in the Corinthians a spirit of, uh, of, of, of grumbling. They were complaining. They were taking one another to other one another to court. They were just engaging in, in, in just talk that they shouldn't have been doing. They were doing, in short, exactly the same things that the Israelites were doing. Here's the quotation. And, and I want to bring this to you and me here just for a minute. This is from, uh, who's this from? I don't remember the author. The circumstances, quote, the circumstances that tempt us to sin are never qualitatively different from those which God's people of every era have experienced, and we never have to give in to them. There is always an escape hatch, which is defined as a way to persevere without sinning in whatever difficult situation we find ourselves. 
All right, so what I wanted you to hear, particularly right now, is the first part of that. Temptation is not qualitatively different in any era. <coughs> they were, not quite, but they were almost as far removed from the Old Testament examples as we are from Corinth. Culturally speaking, they were a long waves. What chronologically, I guess they were 1,500 years? 1,500 years from Exodus and Numbers. We're 2,000 years later. We tend to think, I, I tend to think a lot of times, well, you know, Paul says that, but he didn't have the internet to, to worry about. He didn't have, you know, he didn't have uh, narcotics and prescription drugs and, and some of the things that we have now. So, you know, it, it's, it's, no, no, truth is, Temptation is not qualitatively different. Now, the, the specific manifestation of it might change, but it's not qualitatively different in any, in any era. And so what Paul is trying to get them to understand is you're doing the same thing that they did. You're not maintaining self-discipline. You're, you're, you're relaxing. You're, you know, you're, you're just giving in. You're not, you're, not, uh, you're not even trying, or it doesn't seem like you're trying. And he says, so let... Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, you need to maintain diligence. It's not that you can't have confidence that you're saved. It's that when you start thinking that no matter what happens, I'm fine. I don't really need to be vigilant about this. That's what he's saying. He's talking about people who are, who are just not really, not really putting forth any effort. They're just kind of giving in. That's the difference, it seems to me, between a person who falls away and the other person who struggles and keeps on struggling but doesn't fall away, right? And the difference is the person who falls away gives in, gives in. Just throws on the towel and says, take me out of the race. I'm quitting. That's the difference. And so he brings us, I know we're almost out of time, brings us to verse 13 in our promise. And so this ends on a hopeful note here. And I want it to end that way for you and me tonight, too. So there's no temptation that's overtaken you that is not common to man, to humanity. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, notice again what He does not say. God does not say He's going to take the temptation away from you doesn't say that. He doesn't say that, you know, he's going to remove you from the situation. That's not what escape means here. At the very end of this, he says that you may be able to endure it. He is going to give you, he will give you and me the strength to bear up under the temptation. He didn't promise that he'll remove us from the temptation or remove the temptation from us. But rather, the promise here is that He will empower you to have the ability to stand up and to bear up in the midst of the temptation. Now, I think that's an important distinction to make here. Um, so what's the problem with us then? Because most of us have probably gotten to that point where we thought, man, I can't do it. I just cannot do what I need to do. I cannot avoid what I need to avoid. So what is the problem? 
Could it be sometimes that we're relying on our own efforts? I said at the beginning of this that probably the best way, this is not the best way to say it, that I don't have the... um, It is a true statement to say that I don't have the power to resist this because we don't have the power in and of ourselves. But God will work in us and through us to help us to bear up even though we don't have the power to resist. And I think the distinction, at least the the way I'm processing this in my mind, is that I I think we've got to recognize that we do not have the power. We are unable to resist apart from our reliance on, our dependence on, the power of the Spirit of God to work in us. To give us the strength to bear. Now, you guys have any comments? Questions? Anything at all? Yeah, Clint? That's good. I appreciate that, Clint. Yeah, um, just to summarize that for folks online and those of you who couldn't hear, I think it's a good point. And, and it's that, you know, this is, this is not this, we, we don't just throw up our hands in despair and say, well, there's nothing I can do. You know, I think that's what some of the Corinthians were doing. I don't, just, we can't resist this. We don't need to resist it, whatever. What we've got to do is to turn our attention to God and realize that God, ha- He promised us, He has provided a way of escape. He will give us the strength to bear it. He's promised us that He will. And so if we keep on falling again and again and again, then somehow we are neglecting the opportunity God has given us. Uh, good, good point. All right, we're out of time. The three-year-old teacher is going to come, come get me if I don't finish up. All right.
Thanks a lot. Uh, let's, let's pray as we, as we leave. Lord, thank you so much for a good day. Bless us with the strength. Bless us with the ability, the wisdom to find what you're doing in these moments of temptation to lead us out, to lead us, to give us the strength and help us to be faithful. We love you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks.